Well, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the continuing falling out between Belarus and Lithuania, the speech that Xi Jinping gave during the Chinese Communist Party's 100th anniversary. Along with that, we're going we're gonna to talk about some major developments in the Indo-Chinese Cold War. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid-fire news. So, the U.S. has placed sanctions on 22 officials from Myanmar um, over the coup that happened when the military took control. We've talked about it before, and we'll probably continue giving little updates on it as it progresses. Uh, We talked uh, the other day, a couple weeks ago, or was it last time? I can't remember. (laughs) I can't remember. But they put the leader of the opposition party on trial starting, I think it was last week. I think it was last week. Don't, probably, maybe, don't quote me, unless I'm right. But we'll, we'll keep our eyes on the developments in Myanmar, as well as certain responses to developments in Myanmar from other countries. Because that is what we are here for, the geopolitics of it all. So that's the Myanmar, and while we're still talking about the U.S., we have the U.S. transferring control of the Bagram Air Base to the Afghan government. Um, this has been met with lots of um, fear-mongering, uh, for lack of a better term, from people who really just don't want us to leave this place. Um, and that's what I'll say, that's my two cents on the matter, because, you know, I would appreciate not being in Afghanistan and not having my troops in Afghanistan because no one knows why we're in Afghanistan. But, you know, common sense get thrown, gets thrown to the wayside, you know, <clears throat> every now and then. And every now and then, even less than that, we get, you know, common sense comes to the forefront and we go, hmm, maybe why why are we in Afghanistan? Maybe we should, maybe we should go home. And then you get people who are opposed to the idea doggedly opposed but luckily for me they're losing right now so (laughs) i guess i win on this one and we'll we'll see if i can we'll see if i'll win on getting troops out of europe and asia and africa but uh only time will tell on those but u.s is transferring control of the bagram air base of the afghan government and it'll probably fall into the hands of the taliban by the end of the year that's my guess with the way, with the way things are going for the Afghan government right now they're they're just getting wrecked absolutely messed up by the Taliban right now it's astonishing it is really astonishing it's probably they're probably getting beaten right now worse by the Taliban than South Vietnam got beat by the north and we we know those images from the fall of South Vietnam. Goodness, these people are just getting beat. It's almost uh, it's almost a war crime to watch it happen. 
I shouldn't be <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing at this, but yeah, Afghanistan is uh, uh down. They're going down very 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 fast, very rapidly. But we're getting out very fast and very rapidly, so it will very fast and very rapidly cease being my problem. So we'll we'll see how this goes. Uh, I've already told you my two cents are on the Taliban winning this thing forthright and outright. Uh, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan and how they'll interact with their uh, neighbors when they win. Keyword being when. I don't expect the Afghan government to pull through on this one. And every day I'm proven more right. So we'll move on over to uh, actually before we leave Afghanistan we'll talk about someone else who's leaving Afghanistan and that's Germany. They have completed their withdrawal from Afghanistan. Although interestingly enough the British have decided to stay. I believe they have an SAS regiment that's staying there. I don't know why, but I guess that's their choice. Yeah, well, we'll see how the British public reacts to that, especially after what went down with Crimea. I don't know. I wonder how they'll be responding to these decisions by their military command, um, which don't exactly seem to achieve very much and I, I mean that in terms of like um, material gains or like the non the immeasurable gains like in terms of morale victory or you know concessions that on a some, something else or you know the, the sorts of things you can't really quantify, it, it seems like they're not even getting that with these moves that they're making. Um, they almost caused a mess uh, sailing into the Crimea. And I can only suspect that they're going to get themselves into another mess here in Afghanistan. But we'll have to wait and see. Maybe there's some some grand strategy being played out uh, that I don't know about. I guess I'll just have the fun of observing it as it goes. But uh, we'll move on to a different part of the Middle East, as Israel has launched a new round of strikes on Hamas targets in Gaza. So that ceasefire has ceased to exist. Um, and it's probably going to garner a whole lot of unwanted attention from their neighbors, as it already has. We've talked about... Um, goodness, we talked about how Iran is kind of using this against Israel right now, given that this the the combatants that Israel is fighting in this conflict fall very well within Iran's sphere of influence. We're talking Hamas. We're talking fighters in Lebanon and Syria, and. Jordan, surprisingly, uh, I would have figured that would have been uh, just a little bit beyond the reach of Iran, but um, it seems that their sphere of influence extends into Jordan as well. So while we've witnessed the rise and really the rise to prominence of Iran's sphere of influence in the region, uh, we've also been able to observe at the same time a normalization between the other states in the Middle East with Iran and with this current crisis going on in Israel we're seeing the 
Islamic faith gang up on Israel again in everything except for war. Instead, they're opting for giving weapons to the Palestinians. God forbid the the Arabian, the Saudi Arabian leadership allow weapons transfers to move through the desert to get to uh, the Gaza Strip. Well, not the Gaza Strip. That, that would have to come by sea. But to allow weapons to get to, say, the West Bank. And all they'd have to do is be deliberately negligent of people moving through their desert and go, oh, it's a desert. We can't patrol that. Hooey, Israel has a problem on their hands already, as it is. Because um, this has been going on for decades. So the... Uh, we can't really expect that this round of fighting is going to put a definitive end to it. It might, but given the way things are going right now, it, that definitive end may not be in Israel's favor, uh, especially with even Turkey putting their two cents in against Israel. Uh, again, this has been a kind of like a rallying cry for the Islamic faith, or at the very least, the Islamic countries in the Middle East, uh, and it's been a divisive and touchy subject on places as far away as America where people are taking sides, uh, except for me, you know, because I'm right. I say that that's not my problem. Everyone else insists that it is. I am surrounded. I'm surrounded by people who just don't get it. But I guess you guys do. But enough about me joking about being freaking omnipotent, which I'm not. Um, we, we've observed quite a lot happening with just this little conflict here. And uh, my assumption is that the Israelis are going to try to finish this round of fighting as soon as possible and to cripple Hamas as much as possible before they're basically forced to stop by literally everyone uh, so that they can enjoy some sort of relative peace for uh, maybe a decade or so. We'll have to see, really, because I'm sure that the second the guns stop firing, there's going to be a concerted effort to beef up the Palestinians um, and their and specifically beef up Hamas um, to fight them, really. And that's not going to be fun. We'll watch. We'll watch. There's moves being made by Turkey. There's moves being made by Iran. I speculated that when the civil war in Afghanistan is over... Uh, the Taliban, who will pro- promptly rebrand themselves as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, may even use this conflict to sort of reach out to their neighborhood and get on good terms with everyone. We speculate about that. I'll see if that ends up being the case or if it ends up being really even necessary for them to do so. But it'll be very interesting to see if that happens. Meanwhile, we have a terrorist attack that was planned to occur in Moscow, and it's been prevented, thank goodness, by the Russian FSB, that's their Federal Security Service. And so they arrested one of the organizers in Moscow, um, and they got into a gunfight with the other one, who was in the Astrakhan region, uh, which is in, like, southern Russia, Um, for those who don't know. If you find Russia on a map and you find the Caspian Sea on a map, there's a river that empties into the Caspian Sea. That's the Volga River, and the place where the river meets the Caspian Sea 
That's the Astrakhan region right there. And that's the region of Russia we're talking about here, where they got into a firefight with this second organizer of this terrorist attack. Uh, they got into a firefight with him and he died. Should who who could have seen that one coming, but um, very good, very good that this was stopped. People don't really like terrorists, unless you are the terrorist, in which case, you probably see yourself as a freedom fighter. But that's neither here nor there. This attack has been stopped, and probably a slight morale victory for the Russians. Me on other news, the U.S. Uh, U.S. troops have been hit with missiles in northern Syria. Now, we don't really know definitively who fired them, um, but we've been hit with missiles in northern Syria. The current uh, scapegoat of it all, the current suspect, is a militia group that's being backed by the Iranians, which makes me suspicious given current um, warmongering attitudes towards Iran from my government. So I have to be suspicious of these sorts of things. But, nevertheless, the fact of the matter is our troops have been hit with rockets, and they were in northern Syria when it happened. So my response is, perhaps it's time to withdraw from uh, northern Syria as well, you know? I mean, you can get mad at those militias all you want, but this couldn't have happened if our troops weren't in northern Syria. And that, you know what? That's all I'll say. I'll just, I'll just put that on the table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Putin has vowed to keep providing support to Belarus amid the tangle of the international crisis that the country is currently in as well as uh, the sort of internal one as well. Because um, it's a, sort of a two-pronged thing. It's the internal um, crisis that has triggered the international crisis that Belarus is in. And by crisis, I really just mean a scandal. I'm just being a bit dramatic there with my language. But the scandal that they're in domestically that is expanded into an international international scandal that has even gone as far as to put sanctions on them from the United States and from Europe. And the Russians have stepped in and said they're going to continue to back them. Now, we'll, we'll actually be talking a little bit more about Belarus and how that little scandal has developed, and it's not so little anymore, I'll just say that much before we actually get to that segment of the episode, but, um, yeah, uh, lots of, lots of, uh, lots of mess going on in Eastern Europe, um, in a different continent, though, we have former South African president, Jacob Zuma, Jacob Zumba, who, who has been sent to jail for 15 months for being in contempt of court, which is where you don't show up to your court date for a while, and they get angry at you and sentence you to jail. So he's been put in jail. I guess he'll be forced to show up to court now, where he's probably being tried. Probably, well, not probably. He's going to be tried. He doesn't. He doesn't have an option anymore. We'll see where that goes. The U.S. and Iran have talked 
Uh, their talks on the JCPOA have continued with noticeably increased pressure coming from the Iranian side. Um, I don't really know what they're what they're so eager for at this specific moment because th- these talks have been going on for the U.S. to come back into the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, for months now, ever since Biden took office. So why they're uh, so eager for this to be moved forward right now, and specifically now, not a couple weeks or months ago, not entirely sure. We'll have to see how this plays out. And last but not least, we have Taiwan seeking a free trade deal with the United States. That would be an intolerable offense to the Chinese and would probably risk war at some point in the future. Probably not immediately. I don't, I'm not quite sure how willing the Chinese are to go to war over Taiwan immediately, but the prospect in the near future of them doing so is high and it grows by the second. So we'll have to see if people are smart enough to tread carefully on this one. I say we remove ourselves from this situation and suddenly um, we find that we have a common sense geostrategic position where America defends its, its soil and adheres to the Monroe Doctrine. That's my stance. And maybe one of these days I'll elaborate on it and and the difference between U.S. core interests and the core interest of the U.S. alliance system and how those are two separate things. But I haven't finished putting my thoughts together on that one, so I'll have to finish writing it out before I deliver it to you in glorious fashion at the end of an episode one of these days. But I will get to that, so explain my case on that. That's the rapid fire. And now we're going to get into the meat of the episode. Where we have, like I promised, a talk about the East situation in Eastern Europe between Lithuania and Belarus. So, Lithuania has declared a state of emergency after 150 illegal immigrants uh, of Syrian descent crossed the border from Belarus. And this has sparked accusations from Lithuania that Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, is now weaponizing migration against them for their backing of the opposition leader uh, in Belarus's uh, presidential elections in 2020. And we talked about those elections and how they ended and created a big issue for the country. We even gave an, a bit of an update back when this specific story first uh, happened where Lithuania had rose, they rose the flag of Belarus's opposition party uh, instead of using the Lithuanian, not the Lithuanian, the Belarusian flag. And that created a massive controversy and scandal between the two. That's how we got the scandal that we're in right now. Um, and really, it is sort of an insult when you have an election like that and then your neighbor, 
decides they're going to use the flag of the opposition and not the country. So you can see where they're coming from as well as from the perspective of the Lithuanians, they say, or at least they believe, that it was an illegitimate election, and so they believe they're backing the rightful candidate of the Belarusian election. The rightful winner, mind you, is that's what they believe. My belief, personally, in just full disclosure, I mentioned it back when we first talked about this, my belief is that Lukashenko probably did win, uh, even if by a narrow margin, not the ridiculously large margins that he would present as as truth and fact in his world, but I believe he probably did win. Uh, and that's just my belief. I can't, I don't have the numbers to necessarily back that up, because these things are scrambled. Um... Yeah, when you when you say you have a whole bunch of support like that, um, I don't think he has that much support. He could. He really could. But I think the support isn't that huge, but more than enough to get him over the finish line. That's my personal belief. Um, but regardless of how I feel about this, this isn't about me. This is about Lithuania and Belarus. Because, again... Now you have these migrants being let loose, probably permanently, either purposefully or accidentally. Um, whichever one happened, they've crossed the border into Lithuania now, and it's caused an international incident because Lithuania is accusing Belarus of weaponizing migration against them. And we've talked about the incident again that got us into this situation where Lithuania and Belarus are at odds with one another, but the fallout of it all is what we're sort of witnessing and observing right now. I mean, he, it's a bit of a mess, isn't it? It is a bit of a mess. We have Lithuania. They're backed by the EU, if I'm not mistaken. Belarus is backed by Russia. I know who I'd want to be backed by in this situation, and you can judge by my <laughs> by my uh, previous episodes I've done on the two backers on these sides of this uh, equation to know who I would put my money on. My money's on Russia. But what I see here is a situation where something that really, if we're being honest here, really is none of Lithuania's business. Um, has been politicized by Lithuania, and now you have an international incident that has expanded into an even broader international incident, uh, at first just between Lithuania and Belarus, but now between Lithuania and the EU, Lithuania plus the EU, against Belarus plus Russia. And Lithuania obviously got the backing of the other Baltic countries, uh, Latvia and Estonia, who threw their lot in with their buddy, Lithuania. So, you have this separation and this rift that really didn't need to happen, that has happened because, again, in full honesty, Lithuania not minding their own business. And now, what you're going to see here 
is Belarus, who had previously uh, been content to sort of play off the two sides of the EU and Russia to see who would treat them better and to get the best of both worlds. Now Belarus is forced to make a choice. And when I say they're forced to make a choice, I mean the choice is effectively already being made for them by the open hostility towards them. The EU's placing sanctions. Lithuania's digging their nose into your elections. And God forbid Belarus even attempt to do the same in any of their elections. They would lose their minds. And that's sort of one one of the hypocrisies that I see in my domestic politics here with, say, the Democrats in America, where, well, they're, they're the most vocal who um, group in my country against foreign interference in our elections. Uh, that they're, they're the most notorious with it, and they're right, all right, they're right that we shouldn't have foreign interference in our election, but then we have our government running around uh, getting involved into everyone else's elections. Notably, in this instance, Belarus as well, where we say that Lukashenko lost, where we go around and say who it, whose elections are and aren't legitimate, like in Myanmar or in Crimea, where they voted to secede and go to Russia. We say that's illegitimate. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. But what you have here is a situation where the powers that be are driving Belarus straight into Russia's arms. Just straight into Like, they were resisting being that close with Russia because they know what that is going to lead to. It's going to lead to peacekeepers who never leave. And a de facto annexation by the Russians like what happened in the Caucasus. So what I'm seeing here is essentially Belarus being handed to Russia on a silver platter. And if anything really, really odd goes down, like, say, an assassination attempt or even uh, an uh, attempted revolution in the country for some regime change, which we've seen before, the Russians will send in the troops. And why wouldn't they? This is a country that is on Russia's border. Russia really doesn't tolerate threats on their border. They will send in the troops to protect their border and really give themselves a buffer zone, which these days doesn't mean annexation as much as it means uh, occupation of everyone around you. And that's what the Russians seem to be doing. They did it in the Caucasus. They're doing it in Ukraine. And now they're probably going to get a willing participant in Belarus. And the Caucasus were willing participants as well, uh, minus Georgia. But you see what I mean. You can see the expansion of the Russian de facto border. All these tripwires that are Russian troops being pushed further and further out of Russia's borders uh, into the former Soviet space. They have the Caucasus. They have the Crimea. They have eastern Ukraine, and if anything goes down, they could probably swallow whole more of Ukraine if they really felt like it. And they're going to get Belarus. Belarus is probably going to feel very threatened, especially if NATO decides to do exercises on Belarus's doorstep this time, instead of, say, Russia's doorstep. They will probably ask for assistance. 
and Russian troops will come in. They'll do some joint exercises, and a small portion of those troops from Russia will never leave. That's what I see going down here. It's the unintentional expansion of the Russian sphere of influence. And who else is there to blame but the instigators of this scandal? Again, it all goes back to Lithuania. They didn't they didn't have any stake in who did and didn't win Belarus's presidential election, and it really wasn't their place to do what they did. But they did it. And we uh, we can see the consequences now of blind ideology, I guess, or blind opposition towards one man, uh, Lukashenko. So, we'll sort of keep our eyes on this one as it does pertain to the family favorite great power, which is Russia, you know, right after good old US of A, but I have issues with our current geostrategic situation, namely that it doesn't make sense, but I, I'll explain that when I explain the difference between the U.S. and the U.S. alliance system. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we'll keep our eyes on this uh, developing mess between Lithuania and Belarus and see if it expands further or not. We'll we'll have to see. See, we'll also have to see if it gets uh, like serious, serious, as in Russian peacekeepers actually showing up and um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on this one. It's, this the way it happened is pretty silly, but the implications are pretty notable. I'll say that much. So, excuse me. We'll keep our eyes on this one. And in just a moment, we'll get to Xi Jinping and his speech during the hundredth anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. We'll be back in just a moment. And we are back, and we're here to talk about Xi Jinping's speech during the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, and sort of some of the main takeaways and themes of the speech. Uh, First and foremost, there was a very, very heavy emphasis on socialism and socialism with Chinese characteristics. I don't know how many times he said the word and that term, but it was a lot. So I felt it necessary to bring up that that was first and foremost one of the main emphases of the speech, socialism, with Chinese characteristics, and namely how this specific brand of socialism is attributed by Xi, Xi Jinping that is, towards the building of the modern China and modern China now being a modernized state, a modernized country. And he attributes this to Marxism with Chinese characteristics. So there's, that's the first thing that we have to take away. Well, that's the first thing that I was able to take away from this speech uh, was just the really heavy emphasis on this ideology. And I guess, given the long struggle that the communists in China had to go through in order to attain one control 
uh, well, not control. Well, yes, control, but one unification of China the, from the expulsion of foreign powers, and two, dominance over all of China, because it wasn't just them, there was the nationalists, the Kuomintang, who they fought against uh, back before World War II, periodically during World War II, and then they finished off after World War II, and they kicked them onto the island uh, that we now know as Taiwan. So that's sort of the history, a really, really brief history of the Chinese Communist Party, and how, where they've come from, and how they asserted control over China. And it was under their leadership, mind you, that China opened up to the world, that they survived uh, without getting basically broken down by the two Cold War superpowers. Uh, that was the United States and the Soviet Union. They didn't get drawn up uh, into their conflict. They were able to stay out of it for the most part, with the exceptions of North Korea, of Korea and Vietnam on their border. But they were able to avoid being essentially vassalized by either of these countries and were even able to make gains off of their rivalry uh, with Soviet weapons and equipment and know-how uh, and ultimately an atomic bomb that was made within coordination with the Soviets and that's how the Chinese were able to build the bomb in the first place. So, we have major implications there and that was under... Communist Party leadership uh, with the, the help of a fellow communist country at that point and you fast forward you have them opening up their market um, that was again under the Communist Party and you saw this rapid, this really really rapid increase in the standard of living in income growth, in income in general job opportunities, technological advancement, infrastructure. You saw all this happen in really just the last 40 years for China. And all of this is attributed to the leadership of the Communist Party and by extension, the ideology of socialism with Chinese characteristics. It's all sort of melded together by Xi Jinping in his speech. So, that's sort of the first major takeaway you get from this um, when you listen to his speech on this historic day for them. So, that's number one. Number two, they really emphasized how far China had come, and I sort of hinted at this talking about the first takeaway, but they, they really emphasized how far China had come from essentially being uh, reduced to a near-colony status during the 19th century after the Opium Wars, where they basically got beaten badly by the British, had goods shoved down their, had goods shoved down their throat, and were forced to open up their market to the British, then to other countries, namely the European powers. America got in on it later on. Uh, then they got carved up into spheres of influence with treaty ports from Macau to Hong Kong. There was Shanghai, Qingdao, or is it Qingdao? There was Dalian. All these 
trade ports, these treaty ports that they had to hand over to the Western powers. And later the Japanese would come in and just decide, you know what, we're just gonna we're just gonna take China. This this is ours now. And they took Manchuria and tried to take all of China during World War Two. And they they go through all of this and they're just they go from being in all the centuries prior to the nineteenth century, essentially number one in the world. They were on top of the world for all those centuries. Only occasionally someone would rise up to challenge them like, say, a Roman Empire. Or the Mongols who straight up annexed China. Or the Mughal Empire, a break away from the Mongols who almost unified India. Never quite were successful. Or the Persian, the various Persian empires. Uh, Alexander the Great's empire where he reverse colonized Persia. You had all these uh, empires in history that rarely ever could reach China's level, but then suddenly, during the 19th century, you had a whole bunch of them that had suddenly surpassed China to such a degree that they could just uh, walk all over them, basically. And I guess that was a tribute to the power of the Industrial Revolution, because Europe certainly didn't have the manpower to duke it out with China. But they did. Well, they they were able to duke it out without the excess manpower that China had, which is the vast superiority and quality of the weapons and technology, and it was too much. It was too much, and China suffered a century of humiliation from that, and that is very present in sort of the psyche behind the speech and how. This is specifically he Xi Jinping made a specific reference to 1840, uh, and by specific reference I mean he literally said 1840 is the starting date that they want to they want to measure the the success of where China has come from, and when you, you know you choose such an interesting date, um, you can't help but feel that China has come very far. And they certainly have. You can just look at them now. You can just look at Shanghai now. Beijing. They have come very far. And they emphasize this in his speech. Xi Jinping emphasized this in his speech. Because, um, again, again, they nearly a colony. And the Japanese almost made them into a straight-up colony. Where they destroyed... China in World War II, um, where the nationalists were reduced to guerrilla efforts, the communists started off with guerrilla efforts, uh, and the Japanese were really winning on Chinese soil right up until they had to suddenly leave because the Americans had bombed two cities uh, with atomic weapons. That's what ended the war, but that would open the door to Chinese unification. And it was the, the communists who ultimately unified China under their authority. So this really long and complicated story that ultimately ends in the China you see today is what Xi Jinping emphasized as well in his speech. Um, in this also, he mentioned that they won't be lectured by others who feel that they have 
the authority to do so and that is an that is a very very subtle way of saying that uh, they don't appreciate being lectured to by Western countries because that's who they're talking about like we'll just keep it straightforward here that's exactly who they're talking about they're talking about Europe they're talking about America they're talking about Britain and Australia they're talking about us when they say that and by they I mean Xi Jinping he's talking about us when he says this so he they won't be lectured by others and he went on to say that a strong country he says this a little bit later though a strong country must have a strong military as only then can it guarantee the security of the nation and that was a very striking point that he had made um essentially providing all the justification that I'm sure the Chinese people needed for the buildup of the Chinese military, specifically their navy, that they're this massive naval buildup that they're doing. A strong military must have a strong a strong country must have a strong military. Then it can guarantee the security of its nation. And when you you view that through the lens of everything I just said about how far China had come from being uh, a pseudo-colony of foreign powers, a strong military sounds like a very, very, very good idea, so that you don't have to go through such humiliations again, let alone another century of it. So, that's sort of the angle that they come from when he says this, and he inexorably links the Chinese Communist Party and its future with the future of China as a whole. That was one of, another one of the themes that I saw here where they used the history of the Communist Party in China and all the things that it went through. I just mentioned it, unification of China, fighting the Japanese. He used all that and the prosperity that has been brought underneath them to justify saying that the future of China is dependent on the future of the party. He's, again, inexorably linking the future of the two entities, which really just inexorably links his authority over China, uh, which is by way of the Communist Party, to the future of China. Under his party's authority, can China prosper? And if you don't have us, you're not going to prosper. So it's sort of a sort of a good old politician's game right there. Uh, a very, very uh, intelligent way of putting it, I'll say. Semi-subtle, but it's there. And he also linked the idea of national rejuvenation with the Communist Party. And national rejuvenation was yet another one of the major, really, really major um, themes of his speech, right up there with his emphasis on socialism with Chinese characteristics. And from what I could uh, decipher, uh, this is a national rejuvenation, not just as a, as a, like a recovery from the century of humiliation, although that is a part of it, it's also an idea for the future of China. 
because he mentioned at the very beginning that uh, that um, the first uh, hundred year goal of the party had been achieved, which was mainly dealing with poverty in China, which when you have a couple hundred million people who are no longer technically in poverty, however low that bar may be uh, in the Chinese definition of the word, but you also have lots of people who are in the middle class, hundreds of millions, and millions of people who are genuinely rich, and you have this massive prosperity. So even though you have still really great amounts of poverty, you have now this major contrast of wealth and prosperity that you can really build off of. So that in that first hundred year goal of dealing with poverty, he believes is really dealt with and so now the next goal for the next hundred years is national rejuvenation so that's why I believe it to be a more of an emphasis on the future rather than just we're gonna recover from the century of humiliation it's a future goal and what is this future goal um, what I was able to sort of piece together from it was Basically, they want to be on top of the world again. That's sort of, sort of what I was able to piece together. Because he brings up that China had a thriving civilization for 5,000 years. And for a very long time, they had the most advanced uh, economy, military, and political structure in the world. They had the most advanced culture. And that was all true. It was all true. And for the vast majority of history, that's where China was. So then to go on and talk about national rejuvenation as being the goal now, given where China is now, um, with that being their goal for the next hundred years, basically, um, you could see now that it is not just content. They're not just going to be content with being oh, we're a great power now, we're, we can contend with the other great powers. No, they want to be, they want to be number one again. They want to, for lack of a better term, they want to make China great again. And that's, that's what they want. Well, at least that's what he wants, and he's the leader of the party, and the party is in control of the country. The Communist Party is in control of the country. So... That's what he wants, and that's what they're going to move towards. And as it stands, they're on track right now. There's a, there was an estimate that came out that said that China was going to be surpassing the United States as the largest economy um, in whatever way you measured that in 2028. So, in purchasing power parity, they were already number one, but this is sort of the GDP figures, um, nominal or real GDP figures, in 2028, they're set to surpass us. So that'll be the economic aspect of it. But at the same time, it's coming uh, side by side with this military buildup, which is going to give them, even if it doesn't reach the full scale of what the U.S. has, it's going to give them massive advantages in their neighborhood, which is where, theoretically, that force would be used. Or, even if it's not used in Asia, they have the string of pearls. They could project power 
into the Middle East. They could project power into East Africa, into South Asia, into Southeast Asia. They can go a lot of directions. Uh, And with a military like the one that they're building up now, it's not hard to see them really dominating Asia as a whole. Especially when they have Russia uh, covering their flanks in their rear because they're drifting closer and closer together. So you have this and I believe that to be the goal. That's my belief. That's what I believe that Xi Jinping believes is that now is the time to make the stride that really big that leap that great leap forward into being number one again. That is one of the key takeaways that I have from his speech. They want to be number one. They're on track to doing it, but they're not satisfied with just barely being number one. They want to be unquestionably number one, economically and militarily. And uh, as, a, as a side note, I guess culturally as well. But we'll see where this goes. This is the this is the year that the demographic inversions begin, 2021-2022. So we'll see how they deal with that. And then re- with regards to the demographics of it all, uh, I don't see I don't see immediate collapse of China like Peter Zion does when the demographic inversions start to hit. But I, what I do see though is a series of um, do or die decisions that are going to happen and sort of relatively quick succession and they're going to be very they're going to have really big implications to the future of China and the other countries who are going to be dealing with these demographic inversions which is where you have more old people than young people and more well you have more people old people than you have uh, adults than you have more adults than children so an inverted demographic and so when these inversions hit, there's going to be, in my opinion, a series of do-or-die decisions that are going to get increasingly worse over time because the inversion isn't going to go away for at least 20 years. Yeah, that, that's the best-case scenario, but likely longer. So you'll see countries put under this increasing, increasing, increasing pressure to find a solution to a problem that's if they try to solve it naturally, it's going to take them decades. So that will push these countries to the extremes uh, and it'll make them do really crazy things. And that's sort of where I see these things going. But back to China and their speech, where he, Xi Jinping went on to say towards the end, quote, we will never allow any foreign force to bully, oppress, or subjugate us. And then he says, anyone who would attempt to do so will find themselves on a collision course with a great wall of steel forged by over 1.4 billion Chinese people. That is a bold statement. That's a very big statement. And given where China is coming from, and given where he's, Xi Jinping is coming from in saying these words, after, given the entire speech leading up to it, it's probably meaningful words as well. At least 
to a pretty decent degree, I'm sure a lot of the Chinese people will resonate with his words. And why wouldn't they? After the century of humiliation and after being number one in the world, why would they allow foreign forces to bully oppressors abjugate them? When they believe themselves to be rightfully number one and on track to being number one again. Why would they ever allow something like the 19th century to happen to them all over again? If anything, they'll try to be one of the colonial superpowers rather than getting colonized this time. And they are currently leading in the scramble for Africa, so we'll see where things go. We really will. But things are all not all well and done in Asia where China is currently at home because China has a has a border problem a border problem with a rival a rival power who historically has held just as much cultural significance as they have yeah, in their own way mind you you know They've been the laggard power to China for China's entire history. And while that may not necessarily change this time around, uh, the difference here is that they are unified. And I am, of course, talking about India. There, in China has a border problem with India. And we, this is nothing new to us here on this podcast. It's nothing new to anyone paying attention to India or China individually that they have a border issue and that they don't have like a demarcation line where they say yes it is at this point where my country ends and your country begins and we can agree and move on they don't have that um and recently they've started to fight over it uh not shooting at each other at least not yet but skirmishes on that border and as of recently the cold war between India and China has heated up because we have uh, I bring to you today a report that a really really big troop buildup along the LAC that's the line of actual control in the Himalayas between India and China is occurring there's a really big troop buildup on the Chinese side the number of troops at the border has risen from around 15,000 troops uh, as of, you know, summer of 2020 to 50,000, not 15, 50. So that's 50,000, not 15,000. That is, if my math has not failed me, a three times increase, an over three times increase in the number of troops there. And on the Indian side, the numbers have been raised to match with the Indian army uh, raising, they, they've sent 50,000 troops to the border as well to match the Chinese force here. These are pretty big numbers. Collectively, that's 100,000 men. That is, we haven't seen troop buildups like this since, what, yeah, the, the, the Gulf War? the Iraq-Iran war. We certainly didn't see troop numbers these large during the Caucasus war uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, we haven't seen 
are they this large in Ukraine? I'm not entirely sure. I'll have to, I'll have to look at the numbers on all these conflicts, because uh, this is pretty... I'm pretty sure that even if I look at those, this is still pretty huge. Um, and the numbers only seem to go up. And they, the two sides in question have plenty of manpower to spare. 1.4 billion people in India and 1.5 billion in China. Well, almost 1.5 billion. But we, we've covered the occasional border clashes between China and India. And usually these skirmishes high in the Himalayan mountains are restricted to melee combat. We've talked about them getting into it with fisticuffs, bats, uh, bats covered in barbed wire. Uh, <laughs> that is just savage. Uh, literal sticks and stones. You name it. That, that's, that's the level of the technology that they, they use when they get into these skirmishes. And as savage and barbaric as it may sound, uh, it's actually a pretty meaningful de-escalation on the part of these two countries um, who they could very easily just resort to shooting at each other and just pretend that it doesn't happen when they win the skirmish. They could easily do that, but they've decided that de-escalation at the border was a good idea, at least to a degree, and so far that agreement has held up, probably because neither of them wants to fight a fully-fledged war in the Himalayas, at least not until they're ready yet. Um, they've, they, they continue to shoot at each other, that's, that's the thing, and they shoot at each other um, indirectly, you know, by putting more and more troops here, putting more and more infrastructure, and more and more everything you need to support troops in these, in this really remote region of the world, um, they usually restrict these skirmishes to melee combat, but neither India nor China have stopped with just sending soldiers there, they've each built roads, they've each built housing to accommodate the increasing troop presence there, They've built uh, airstrips, and they're putting in airplanes on those airstrips. Uh, planes capable of carrying high-yield weapons like bombs and high-caliber machine guns or helicopters. Those those helicopters don't do too very don't do too well in the in the environment, but they're there anyway because yeah, helicopters are pretty useful. So they have they have all these things there, and they're putting more and more infrastructure and supplies into this region. And India has gone as far as to move up artillery into the Himalayas, while China has put into place anti-air systems like their HQ-9 air defense system, which is kind of like the Chinese answer to a S-300 or a American Patriot battery. So, you have China defending the airspace, and India backing up its ground forces with artillery. Literal heavy artillery. So I guess there you can sort of see the priorities, uh, instead of shine through. Uh, in the military doctrine, where China wants anti-access area denial, whereas India has the concept of overwhelming firepower. Or at least that's what we can observe by the the weapons of choice that they brought up here. So, 
that's, that's sort of an interesting little tidbit that we can observe from this. Um, but also in the Himalayas, because it's not just India and China who are heating up here, we have a shootout in the Srinagar in Srinagar city. Uh, that's a city in Kashmir, uh, the Indian part of Kashmir, that occurred between the Indian military and the pro-Pakistan rebels operating in the region. Uh, Pakistan accused has been accused by India of flying drones over the Indian High Command, well, the, the High Commission, and essentially the Indians are accusing Pakistan of spying on them. Pakistan's foreign office denies these claims, saying that they were baseless and had no evidence to back them up, and in light of this, it's reasonable to assume that the Indian government will probably ignore Pakistan's denial, which will lead to further increases in tensions. So, recap. Massive troop buildup on the Indo-Chinese border. Uh, insurgents in Indian Kashmir and blatant spying on each other by India and Pakistan using drones no less there is a mess there is a mess that's sort of my sort of my favorite word when it comes to things like these and I think it's it works it works because they're just listen to what I just told you that is a whole mess that is just waiting to happen just wait it's like it's like uh, the Balkans in World War One. you have all these overlapping claims you have all these ethnic tensions you have religious tensions overlaid on top of that you have nationalistic tensions overlaid on top of that you have old grudges from old history laid over top of that and then you have modern geopolitics layered on top of that it is a mess oh, it is a mess and while I'm not entirely sure if it'll blow up into say a hot war it's definitely gonna make the Cold War heat up but we'll, we'll just keep our eyes on this uh, moving forward and some of the other developments in this Cold War as well um, wasn't expecting the Indochina front, the, the hard border between them to heat up like this but I always like to keep in mind that India has a 10-year military pact with Japan and it kind of reminds me of the pact that Britain and France had uh, against Imperial Germany so will this be a World War One tangle of alliances? China has Pakistan on their side, I can guarantee you that um, the Koreas will probably stay neutral North and South and we'll see what everyone else does but I uh, the the intricacies of everyone else's reactions aside you can sort of see now again if it wasn't evident already that there is a non there is a there's a non-kinetic war brewing in this region and the best way I can describe it is Cold War 2.0 what will its implications be we don't know we'll have to find out in the future but that is all I have for you today, and I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Oh, oh excuse me. 
I've enjoyed my 4th of July. I hope you did too. And while we, while you look back on your celebrations with fireworks, because it's, it's sort of in the past now, you know, uh, limitations of my upload schedule. But as we look back on the good times and look forward, we can see that the world is changing. But we know that we will have fun watching it change together. So, I have been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.